0: Hi, it's Dave. Welcome. Today, I'm here with James from Invest Answers. He runs a popular YouTube channel on crypto and investing. He's got some great models and videos understanding where crypto has come from and where it's headed. I've been watching a lot of his videos lately and I'm glad to invite James on the
1: show. How are you doing? Excellent. Very honored to be here, Dave. I've been following you too for a long time. Great. It's great to eventually meet. Awesome. Um,
0: so, yeah, we have a lot of good things happening. Bitcoin, all-time highs near, near. Ethereum is near all-time highs. Tesla is near all-time highs as well. Um, and next week, we'll be talking about Tesla. I know you do a lot of trading with derivatives and stocks since, and you're a big Tesla bull as well, so we'll push that to next week. This week, I want to focus on crypto, and I know your top three assets are Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Solana. Is that correct?
1: Uh, on the crypto side, yes, okay. that is totally correct.
0: But okay, I also it.
1: have um, my second biggest position would be Tesla. Okay. Oh wow. Well, well, curious yeah. if you're if you're open
0: to sharing. What is your kind of percent allocation in terms of your assets with crypto versus, let's say, stocks or real estate, et cetera?
1: So my philosophy is always to break things into thirds. Although it's very hard to keep exact thirds. So I believe in having a third and things like real estate, be hard assets that are safe and spin off perpetual income. And then the other third is kind of safer assets but are also uh, have very high growth potential. So in my middle bucket of a third I have things like Tesla and Google, etc. and a whole bunch of bitcoin proxies as well. And then my other third is all the high risk portfolio which would be very risky derivative trades, you know, naked puts, synthetic longs, uh, crypto positions, etc. So that's how it works. And then within those thirds the breakdown is well, my largest position would be Bitcoin, second largest Tesla, and then down the line, third largest would be Ethereum. Fourth would probably be MicroStrategy, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's a, a very strange mix, but heavy, heavy on crypto and crypto proxies. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, interesting. I mean, that's pretty um, Yeah, it's pretty fascinating that you have exposure to real estate, to stocks, let's say like Tesla and others, and to crypto, and you're using your past experience to kind of analyze everything. Where does your past experience come from? Like, yeah, where are you getting um, the ability and your experience to analyze, let's say, crypto or stocks?
1: Um, yeah. So that's an interesting question. First of all, my background is in financial risk management. And I have been working in financial services my entire life. I retired in 2020. And uh, my new focus is to share kind of what I know with, with the market and the world out there. So back back to my beginning, um, I, my first ever, and one of the problems that I had was uh, my, one of my first ever trades went really well. And it was a dollar yen trade. And uh, then I decided I was untouchable and i borrowed money and got into a really really big position and it went against me and i lost everything and i was probably 20 21 years of age and that hurt and that i have those scars for life ptsd whatever you want to call it now for 31 years but it's made me a much better investor so as a result of that i like to use detailed risk management and do my homework with very very intense research and modeling and in terms of modeling and how i learned that well i've got three kind of finance degrees UCD I went to place a place like Kellogg, I have a master's in finance in Wharton Business School. And from that, you get you know, drilled all things kind of macro, finance, analytics, etc. And that's where I have that background. And I spent a lot of my time over the last 30 years analyzing companies, valuing companies all across the board, and spent a lot of time in technology as well. So I like disruption and I like being first because that's how you make exponential gains is getting in early before the rest.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, okay, so when you, when you analyze a, a stock or a company, obviously you have revenue, you have margins, you have profit, et cetera. You can apply a certain mo- multiple um, to come up with an expected valuation. On the crypto side, are you using any type of those type of metrics at all or is it a complete different kind of model, modeling and source of data that you're using?
1: It's very, very different. And, you know, the, the way to be successful in investing is to have very deep specializations. So when I build price prediction models for Bitcoin, I look at a lot of macro factors. I look at money flows. I look at adoption. I look at things like hash rate. I look at money supply, inflation, uh, movement of other assets into the Bitcoin pool. So that's one method. In fact, um, I did a, a recent video with Robert Breedlove and we did some very interesting macro modeling around how Bitcoin could get to $12.5 million by the year 2031. And I kind of backed into some of his thesis. And it's it's very believable when you see that. But the money printing is impacting a lot of the, how Bitcoin is valued. Other places like the DeFi space, names like Ethereum, I look at the, the industries that are disrupting and how much they are worth. So for example, DeFi is going after a $400 trillion market, but it could easily take 1% of that market share, turning into a $4 trillion market. And then other nuanced uh, cryptos like VeChain, it's a supply chain play. So I compare those blockchain type companies to traditional software companies like you know the supply chain management solutions that Oracle and SAP would have. I look at the total addressable market growth rates, margins, and compare that to the blockchain solution and look at the tokenomics and create valuation models that way. And sometimes people don't like my valuation models because they say they're too low or too conservative, but I just compare it to real-world situations. Mm-hmm. So I've been able to get in early to a lot of assets because I can identify the value early. In fact, Tesla is another good example. I spent a lot of time valuing Tesla ever since 2018, 2019. And uh, in fact... <laughs> who's interesting i bought a tesla x three years ago Mm -hmm. and the next day i was so amazed with the car i bought a bunch of call options on tesla and you know that i know your price base is very low on tesla and so is mine Mm -hmm. but uh, those types of things when you get a feel for the asset and how different it is and how disruptive it could be that's where i like to play
0: got it um i mean when you take a industry and let's say you say a, Ethereum can take a certain percent of the financial services total industry. Um, there's a lot of different, I guess, unknowns or variables within that. For example, how do you know it's one percent or not ten percent? How do you know the time frame, whether it's five years versus twenty years? How do you know if there's not another player that will come alongside, you know, during that time frame? Like, how do you factor in the uncertainty? Because, for example, if you're looking at just a single company with a stock, you could project kind of. Their, their products and their revenue certain you know, years out. But let's say, let's take an Ethereum network. A lot of the price seems to be a function of demand, right? Um, if there's a lot of people wanting that asset and valuing the asset, if there's a limited supply of the tokens, it will drive up the price. And so what would you say to people that it's like with price prediction, um, it seems like it's so driven on the supply demand mechanism um, with scarce tokens and high demand, but how do you predict demand even five or 10 years down the road? Um, what do you say? Yeah,
1: So with the things like the my big focus in the crypto space beyond Bitcoin, which is a pristine store of value, I look at DeFi space and I look at the layer ones and some layer twos. So what I mean by that is all the smart contract platforms, that's kind of my focus area. I don't go after NFTs or other types of plays or memes. I'm very, very focused on identifying the winners of the market that has has the largest total addressable market. And the way I value them is I look at things like network effect, adoption, wallets, the amount of DEXs, AMMs, other dApps that are being built on the chain. I look at the supply of the tokens, how these tokens are being used, who's actually using them for utility. I look at growth rates across all these areas, total value locked and a bunch of other stuff. And I weave that in and that helps me identify not only what the value is, but also what the upcoming chains could be that could be potential maybe ETH killers or whatever. So I keep a big focus on that because I have an Ethereum position, I wanna protect it. So if there is something like an ETH killer, I can use all the same metrics to identify who's coming up from behind. And that's how I've been a successful in identifying some other winners in the place. But it takes a lot of work, and it's, it's always a moving target as well. But I like to also be very conservative, so I sandbag my numbers help very heavily. So when I say one percent of a four hundred trillion market, it could very easily be three or four percent. But I want to know my minimum, and that'll help me allocate as a result. Anything above that return is gravy. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um,
0: what I've noticed, I don't know if like what your feedback is, but in the past maybe six months or so, I've I've just noticed a lot of momentum with with Ethereum and DeFi and uh, decentralized apps, where there seems to be you know a lot of innovation happening. And while Bitcoin, it felt like it had the meme power up until let's say early this year, it seems like there is a growing conviction and belief from certain people. I'm not going to say all, but that Ethereum is is carrying some maybe more momentum nowadays. Um, what's your kind of view on the future of Ethereum and Bitcoin? Do you think Ethereum can flip Bitcoin? Do you think Ethereum can be the preeminent crypto asset? And do you think Bitcoin's, what you call the pristine store of value proposition, do you think that will be uh, minimized in any way by a possible Ethereum dominance in
1: the future? Well, it's a, an interesting question. So when I look at Ethereum, I see that as a transactional store of value. And Bitcoin is a pure store of value. And I mean by transactional store of value is Ethereum is a utility to transact and do business and stake and get returns. And if you look at all the big movements into Ethereum right now, it's it's very heavy on the institutional side. And Ethereum is far from perfect. It still has its problems, but it is so widely adopted, like things like Binance Smart Chain and a whole bunch of other big chains actually run off the Ethereum protocol or the EVM, the Ethereum virtual machine. So from that perspective, yes, it has a huge amount of utility and a lot of people believe that Ethereum could flip the value of Bitcoin down the line. I believe that is theoretically possible, but I'm much more, yes, it has a huge amount of utility and a lot of people believe that Ethereum could flip the value of Bitcoin down the line. I believe that is theoretically possible, but I'm much more into what I believe we're gonna to get to what I call a 10 to one ratio. So there will be some time in the next 12, 18, 24 months, the ratio of Ethereum to Bitcoin will be 10 to one. So if if Ethereum is $10,000, Bitcoin will be $100,000. If Ethereum is 20,000, Bitcoin will be $200,000. Now I see the value of Ethereum, it could be that $4 trillion market cap down the line, we're talking 10 years from now. That's very, very theoretically feasible. But at the same time, in that time frame, Bitcoin will be a $10 trillion market cap. So that's the way I kind of see it. I don't see it flipping the market cap, but I do see the value of Ethereum growing because of its utility down the line. Mm-hmm. But
0: I mean, What uh, do you say to, I mean, I, it seems like Bitcoin's, um, value proposition is, hey, we're the most secure, you know, uh, store of value with proof of work. No one can copy us. We have already, you know, not just first mover advantage, but network advantage, all the hash powers, all concentrated, you know, with Bitcoin. But what do you say to people who might say, hey, but do you even need that much, you know, security per se to, to be secure enough? Um, sure, Bitcoin can be ultra secure, but why, I mean, if, um, security was a big issue, then why aren't we seeing more hacks, you know, with Ethereum or other blockchains is could proof of stake be good enough for, you know, a, a store of value? And can Ethereum with its growing, let's say utility, kind of just encompass the proof of stake or the, or the store of value proposition in, in, in its own, you know, value proposition kind of framework? What do you what do you think about that?
1: Well, I have a... First of all, if you look at... There's a lot of stuff on that. If you look at the Bitcoin network, it is the most powerful computer network on earth. But it's also protecting a trillion dollars in value. And it's also protecting transactions. So imagine you, Dave, you want to ship a billion dollars from USA to Japan, for example. Wouldn't you want that transaction to be very secure and very cheap? very efficient. And that's where the real value of Bitcoin is. You can move a billion dollars sometimes for under four bucks or sometimes even under a dollar. And that's kind of staggering. I think the rest of the world is moving to proof of stake, but proof of stake has its own issues. And it comes from the fact of kind of it's akin to a Cantillon effect. Those that have the most staked get the most reward. And that, I think, is a little bit unfair, whereas the way the hash rate is distributed with Bitcoin is a lot more equitable, and it cannot be influenced by the big stakers. So we'll see where it all turns out. You know, the Ethereum are moving to proof of stake from proof of work, and uh, we'll take it from there. But when you look at the amount of energy used by Bitcoin mining, I know people say it's a huge ESG problem, environmental issue, et cetera, it's changed radically. So Bitcoin is a store of energy, but it utilizes what would otherwise be wasted energy. So for example, geothermal or hydroelectric, it's very difficult to move electricity without slippage or wastage, but the miners go to where the free or cheap energy is and it turns it into that value. So it's actually highly, highly efficient. People estimate that 56% of all Bitcoin mining hash rate now uses renewable energy. So from that perspective, and it's only going to get better. And in fact, Bitcoin mining is revolutionising the adoption of green energy sources and the research into it. So I think uh, it's nothing but positive. But I do believe the rest of the world will go to proof of stake. But proof of stake needs to be truly tested and validated as we go forward to make sure that there isn't unfair influence by the Cantillon effect of those that stake the most. And that all remains to be seen. But again, that's why I always differentiate between pristine store of value that needs proof of work to keep it secure and safe. Think of Fort Knox. Um, that's what you need. You know, Fort Knox has tons of military soldiers and security and cameras and land and defense. Think of traditional financial institutions. How many banks and branches are there with safes and security and cameras and guards and everything else. They burn way more electricity than the Bitcoin mining. So there's just a lot of FUD that is spent out there to try and turn people off. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah.
0: Um, let's. I want to talk about crypto cycles. So there's a lot of different views on how to predict the cycles of Bitcoin, Ethereum, other cryptos. Um, one of those is kind of the Bitcoin halving, you know, theory, which is every time Bitcoin halves, you see a run up in price, um, and then it hits a certain top, and then after that, it crashes down until the next halving. Um, do you agree with that, or do you have a different idea or perspective on the cycle, the price cycles of crypto, especially with more institutional investors coming in for with a different purpose? Let's say,
1: you know, um, investing in crypto. Uh, I have a very different perspective. Um, I believe, mathematically, the impact of the halving is happening every time it has. So, therefore, the issuance daily issuance goes down by fifty percent. So, it's not like in the old days. Where it was radical during the old cycles but now it is becoming far less important the other thing that's having a huge impact uh, is this cycle is dominated by high net worth individuals and institutions and family offices and treasuries and you've got george soros in there you got you know macro investors like ray dalio and you got fidelity morgan stanley i mean it is the adoption is beyond my wildest dreams. So if you had asked me early twenty twenty would all this happen in twenty twenty one, including a sovereign like El Salvador, I'd say no way. That's not. That's just impossible. But it's like a nuclear arms race to get some of this and get it adopted. People want it and the institutions have to embrace it or they will suffer the result. So that's another aspect. Um, Also, you got your top macro investors, some of the best minds in the world. They're all going in hard. You've got Peter Thiel, one of the best investors of our time, saying he wish he had more and he has over 30,000 Bitcoin and he wishes he had more. Um, Then we got the huge macro backdrop, basically the 15% debasement of the fiat currency. And everybody needs a hedge for that. And Bitcoin is ultrasound money. Um, then we have uh, the miners. But when what happened with the China mining ban, um, turning off all the mining literally overnight, that pushed nearly 40% of the hash rate to the United States. And the United States miners aren't people in their grandma's basement. These are big billion dollar corporations that raise money uh, through issuing shares and borrowing, etc against their market caps and they are buying rigs like they're going out of fashion and they are scaling and they're not selling any Bitcoin. So we're used to having in the past 900 Bitcoin a day hitting the market. Now miners are hodling because they know where the value of Bitcoin is going. They are deep in the space. So again, supply is extremely, extremely rare and I just see the price going up more and more. So will there be a big retracement after you know, this bull market, I don't think so. Definitely nothing like the past. Maybe if we have a blow off top, there could be a 50, 60% retracement, but the 85% retracements of the past are a thing of the past.
0: Interesting. So, I mean, if you take that and apply it to uh, investing or trading strategy, um, any like sudden 30%, you know, flash crash, are you buying basically that type of movement?
1: Like any any dip in Bitcoin, I, I consider... The way I tell people, it's my, now my money market account. So imagine you have $50,000 sitting in a money market account at a bank that pays you 0.01% interest. If I were to have cash, I would stick it in Bitcoin and just store it there. Because I know the average returns over the past 11 years has been 200% per year. Um, and I know my fiat is debasing by 15%. And because of the scarcity thesis, the only way is up. Bitcoin is mathematically programmed to go up. It can't go anywhere else. And we're so early in adoption, less than 2.5% of planet earth has adopted Bitcoin. And that adoption is accelerating like I've never seen. That's why I believe this cycle will be very different to previous cycles. Mm -hmm.
0: Interesting. Um, How about, um, let's talk about inflation. So, you know, some people might argue like Even Peter Thiel recently saying inflation has had a big impact on the rising price of Bitcoin with demand. Um, If the Fed, let's say, stops their quantitative easing completely, let's say next year sometime, some people are saying that this could be a risk factor for certain growth stocks, etc. Could it be a a risk factor for, you think, Bitcoin at all?
1: I I think it definitely could, but the, the thing is, I believe the Fed and other central banks around the world have painted themselves into a box. So they have, there's too much debt in the system. So the the Fed has a problem. One is they need to keep the economy going. And to do that, they need to keep it flush with cash. If they stop all quantitative easing, they will not be able to repay their debt. And if they increase interest rates, they will double the cost of servicing their debt. So there's no way out. It's like the the Fed have mathematically programmed themselves into perpetual money printing. And I have run the numbers every which way, and it's just getting more extreme. And that's why we're going to go into a phase of accelerated quantitative easing over the next 10 years. Because if you look at the tax receipts, they don't cover a third of the amount of deficit we have. And it's just going to get worse and worse as time goes on. Because the deficit will grow. The servicing of the deficit will grow. The interest rates, uh, uh, the interest servicing will suck up all of the revenue that the, the governments make. And again, there's just no way out of it. So from that perspective, I don't think it's going to happen. And the Fed is well aware of this. Again, they will taper a little bit, just to show that they're serious and have some controls. But when they say tapering a little bit, that might be shaving one-fifteenth or one-tenth of what they're actually printing right now today.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Inflation, like,
0: do you think it continues to, to trend um, as high as it, it, it has been over the next several years?
1: Yeah, so if you if you imagine, imagine an economy like the U.S. Uh, central bank, they print 40% new money in the space of 20 months. That 40% will eventually trickle down in the form of inflation. Typically, 15% per year and it'll taper off over time. But as the money printing increases, the inflation will be there. So I believe we're in a permanent state of inflation. I know there's people out there like Kathy Wood says, oh no, it's deflationary because of technology. Yes, certain things will be deflationary. Like flat panel TVs will get cheaper when you go into a store like Costco. But blueberries, apples, bread, milk, eggs, that stuff is just going to get more and more expensive as time goes on and we're seeing that. Everywhere we look, there is inflation. Inflation in energy costs, inflation in food costs, inflation in labor costs. Uh, it's just all across the board. And there's no way it ever goes down. It'll only go up from here. So I do believe 10 to 15% debasement is the norm now for the next at least four to five years, maybe even further. And when you look at that on the impact of, of things like pensions and people living on fixed incomes, it is quite horrific for them.
0: Like, how are you getting, I mean, I understand, obviously, with the money supply, you know, being printed in crazy amounts last year, but um, 10 to 15% debasement, that's a, a quite a large, you know, amount for the next several years. Like, um, like if I had $1,000, you know, let's say, if it's 15% debasement over five years, that's basically taking away half my purchasing power. That's like crazy amount. I mean, yeah, if you, is if you, that what... If
1: you, yeah. If you have a million dollars and we're debasing at 15%, the value of that million dollars after nine years will be about $520,000. So you lose half. That's okay. the so it's pretty, it's pretty staggering.
0: Okay. Um, okay. So um, is it only half? It sounds like it would be a lot more at 15%. No, 10%. 10%, right, 10%, 10% yeah, hard. at 10%, obviously, yeah. But 15%, percent you would probably be even uh, five years or, or six years or so, I'm guessing. Yeah,
1: six years. Um, exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's extremely fast. I mean, have we seen, I mean, maybe in the 70s, I guess, with inflation, just like, but are you, are you are you, expecting that level of inflation like to persist in coming years?
1: Yeah. If you look at places like Europe, for example, Europe has a huge problem now with energy, so Europe is heated during wintertime uh, by using gas, which they bring in from Eastern Europe. And now China have decided to buy all that gas. <laughs> so, you know, you look at the price of natural gas in Europe now, it's just gone through the roof. So there's just it's just everywhere you look, you look at the huge supply chain disruption, you look at the semiconductor industry, the demand for semiconductors. They, they, the fabs can't make semiconductors fast enough to keep up with the demand. And you know that from analyzing Tesla and how they've worked around the whole semiconductor challenge. So it's just everywhere you look, I I say the kind of the world is broken. So yes, 10%, I would bet my bottom dollar over the next five years will be the real inflation rate. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at the way the CPI is made up today, they say, oh yeah, it's 5.1% or 4.1, but it's not a real number. It's artificial. And it doesn't include the real items that actually matter like real estate and housing costs. And you mm. look at BlackRock buying up all the housing right now. You think they're going to be cutting tenants a deal? You know they're yeah. outbidding individuals.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like um, with inflation, you could break it down maybe in terms of asset inflation, with, for example, real estate or stocks or even let's say crypto. And yeah, there's definitely seems to be huge inflationary pressures there um, with a lot of money chasing around assets. But on the flip side, if you look at more consumer goods and that that inflation area by itself, um, like it's extremely, like obviously we could talk about the numbers for a long time, but even 10% inflation for over seven years, that's a doubling. So like, I I just don't see my rent going up double in seven years. along with everything else in my life, my car payments and everything doubling in seven years. It just seems so crazy. I mean, is that what you're saying? In seven years, everything, my all my standard of living will be double in price? Because that's what 10% over seven years, it seems like it comes out to yeah. be.
1: The, the things that you look at, things like your medical care, maybe your prescription drugs, your food, your services, like, uh, I'll give you a simple example. I took a photo. I went into the store. I used to buy these Fuji apples. And they used to be $6.99 for a tray. It was about 15 months later. And I had a photograph on my phone. I said, I knew I took a picture of this. Uh, 18 dollars that same tray of apples, 14 or 15 months later. Exactly. And they just, everything is going up. And it's not going to go back down. and the simple thesis is not really to break down the cost of all the elements, but I have proven mathematically that when money is printed, the currency is debased. If you have a hundred US dollars in the US distributed amongst 340 million people, and you increase that to $140, it drives inflation. Now we have sense about that. It takes time to trickle through the system, but it just, it just does that. And uh, if you look at all of the money printing and increase of household wealth You can see the direct impact of the money printing. But the problem is all that money printing goes straight to the top 1% and their household wealth increases first. And is there trickle down? No, there's not. And that's a big part of the problem. So I think the Fed needs to get better at how they distribute money as well, not just give it to the top 1%. Mm -hmm. So it's a a tricky subject, but inflation is here to stay for sure.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. I, I want to talk. Ask your opinion on uh, altcoins such as, let's say, Dogecoin or Shiba Inu or etc. I know your. It seems like your approach to crypto investing is more um, a lot of due diligence, a lot of homework, and you try to be conservative. So, um, what what are your thoughts on on Dogecoin and Shiba Inu and other coins? Do you think they have any value? Do you think any will emerge as a long term, you know, asset, or do you think they're just, you know? Uh, shooting stars fading away, you know, once the hype ends. You
1: yeah, know, well, I don't want to alarm your audience, but I do believe of the 12,000 coins and tokens out there, 95% of them will disappear or become almost valueless over the next four to five years. That's a given. Um, if you look at some of these meme coins, like you mentioned, anything with a dog brand in it, uh, it, it basically it's a very simple piece of technology that's easily cloned or forked into another version. So Shiba Inu is a copy, a direct copy of Dogecoin. And in fact, um, many things are copies of other things. Now, if you look at a couple of metrics for, and I feel sorry for people that invest in these assets, and yes, it can be get rich quick, but it's also a timing game. But the top 10 holders of Shiba Inu own 75% of it. So it's just 10 individuals have 75% of the coins. Um, And during the ICO, they create this thing Called a quadrillion tokens, uh, which is just a ridiculous number. But they do that for a reason, because people think they can get rich quick. They don't do the math. So individual retail investors think, oh, I can buy a million of these tokens for, I can't remember the exact number. But at the time, um, when Shibu, Shiba Inu came onto Coinbase, it was so cheap, you could buy 1 million tokens for, I think, $25. And then people believe, and I've had debates with people online. They believe, oh, Shiba Inu is going to a dollar. Then I'm going to be a millionaire. So I'm going to invest $25 now and be a millionaire. Now, if you got in very early and you were the first one to buy and you spent $8,000, yes, you can create a billion dollars mathematically. But you've got to remember, this thing can't go to a quadrillion dollars in market cap. It just can't. So if you look at... You know, probably the most valuable company on Earth, in my opinion, is Tesla. And the market cap right now is, what, 1.3 trillion, It's 1.2 trillion? Uh, it's, it's, it'll never be a quadrillion dollars. Unless, of course, we have massive hyperinflation, then it's possible. But it's a separate issue. But the problem is, I just see this as one big, like a multi-level marketing scheme, Uh, It's designed, manipulated by whales. They pump things up. They buy a lot. They compress the supply. They get people excited. Like if you go to Times Square today, you'll see a big Shiba Inu poster on the billboard in the middle of Times Square. Who's paying for that and why? That's what you need to think. You you don't see Bitcoin advertisements. Bitcoin doesn't advertise itself. Tesla doesn't advertise itself. But this thing is, is very much pumped. So the principle is real simple. Create communities, build a network effect, get fan bases excited, create the multi-level marketing scheme. Uh, Growth comes out of new investors coming into the system. The guys that hold all the big bags dump it, and then the retail investors lose their money. That's the way it works. We've seen this happen many, many times, and that's what's going to happen with these meme coins. So I don't touch them. I don't even talk about them, in fact. I think it's the first person I've ever spoken about them, and it can make you unpopular, too.
0: Yeah.
1: If you call somebody's baby ugly, type of thing, but that's just the fact of of what this is. There's okay. no, no value yeah. behind
0: it. I mean, what do you say to the people? Okay, so a, a few different, let's say, possible, you know, arguments that would be, you know, w- what if there are certain coins that do make it? You know, because for example, you could say you could have the same criticism of perhaps Bitcoin or Ethereum in the early days with people pumping their coins and you know lots of different. Uh, manipulation going on by whales, et cetera. Um, So it seems like, you know, can we be guilty of kind of prejudging all of them when perhaps there are going to be these huge winners, perhaps even, you know, the next generation, big winners. And um, should we not at least consider at least some of these, you know, more, I guess, higher potential altcoins? Or do you just look at them all and just discount them Do you you analyze them first and discount them or do you wait until they become kind of like a bigger player, you know, with let's say more adoption and more legitimate type of validation before researching? Like, because there's so many projects out there to research, you know, like how do you uh, divide up your time and analyze this?
1: Well, that's a great question. That's why I know from history is to the way to be successful in investing is to focus. And that's why all of my focus goes into smart contract platforms. You know the Ethereum's, the Solanas of the world, because I believe they're going after a very large addressable market. Things like the meme coins, it's just there's nothing behind it. There's no technology. There's no barrier to entry. There's there is a network effect, but it's fleeting. Like there could be twenty other Doges and Shibas over the next six months, and the money and the manipulation will go from one to the other. And those that get in early are close to the money printing machine which is the token printing machine make the most money now there are other areas that i am fascinated by but i'm hesitant i I dabble in things like the whole metaverse play so i own uh things like Chili's. got a little bit of rally i own engine coin quite a big position in engine coin because i do believe in that whole metaverse nft space especially in combination with sports And that's big. And there's also a couple of games that are of interest too, like Axie Infinity, the way that whole commerce model works is kind of fascinating. But again, I'm not a video gamer, so I have an Achilles heel that I'm well aware of in that space, but I do dabble. So, and in terms of, as you say, yeah, there are 12,000 tokens, I believe 5% will make it. And that's a lot. The question is, what is that 5%? And again, you need that barrier to entry. You need the moat. Think technology mode like Tesla have. You need the network effect, and you need a big total addressable market that it's going after, whatever that may be. That's part, that's that's my threshold to getting in and doing a deeper dive.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, do you think, I mean, it seems like because, you know, Doge and Shiba, um, it seems like you're, obviously you're not a fan. Um, I don't hold uh, Doge or Shiba, Shiba either, but, um, some advocates would say, like, the meme is the power, you know, yeah. and um, do you, do you um, think there's some legitimacy to that? Like, the, the strongest meme power actually could eventually perhaps make it and win?
1: Yeah, n- not when it's so easily replaceable. And remember, these are fleeting fads. These are not uh, really valuable things. And again, I do completely embrace the fact that social does drive value and does drive markets, like an MLM scheme. And I'm well aware of that. You look at some whale who bought the billboard in New York Times Square. Why is he doing that? To pump it so he can sell his bags and violate investors. And this is what people like Gary Gansler are going after, because this is definitely, definitely a security. And it's definitely hurting retail investors. So they may be making money now, but the time will come when everything will be drained, as as we've seen time and time again in the space. But the problem is we have new people into it. And so, I don't know. But yeah, the social is there, but the social is fleeting. Mm. It'll never last forever.
0: Mm. Okay. Um, Axie Infinity, you mentioned that briefly. Um, how How big do you think the gaming kind of metaverse play can become on the blockchain? It seems like... I mean, the potential could be almost unlimited if done right. Um, partially because you get the whole people get ownership a, a piece of the pie as they play. Um, and if there is a hit product that really just takes off, and it could become a platform where they could build a lot of things on it, it seems like perhaps the next big, you know, company um, can be made on the blockchain. Do you think? Um, like, what are some players that you're looking out for? Like, do you do you have any of your eyes on you know, some potential huge winners that um, might be too risky for, <laughs> for a big position, but you're just yeah. like, huh, interesting.
1: Yeah, so I'm also very disciplined about how many positions I hold, because you've got to be a mile deep in every single position. So I have this structure where I hold no more than 10 equities and no more than 10 cryptos. That's it, because you cannot absorb all of the data if you start dabbling. Also, I believe uh, the way to be successful in the market is to find winners early and go in hard and not have 50 of one thing or 50, say, cryptos, because some will do well, most will do bad. The average will be a very bad result. So that's kind of where I I kind of focus and invest. And I know my weaknesses. I know I don't play video games, never played video games, don't understand them. But I have looked at some uh, comparables. So I looked at things like Roblox. Uh, and the valuation of that company. And I compare that to where Axie could go. I do believe the future is blockchain. I do believe the future is tokenized. And I do believe video game will all go in that direction, all of it. So we're talking a trillion dollars of value at least. And it'll be shared by the top three to five players. But they got to keep on inventing themselves because the people that play video games get bored easily, and they'll always want something new. And that's, you see that probably with other video games, you know, maybe 10 years ago, Call of Duty was big. And then maybe there's a new first person shooter. I don't know, I'm out of my depth here. But yes, it is a huge market, but not one I focus on. Trillion dollars is interesting. 400 trillion dollars is more interesting. That's where I focus.
0: Got it. Um, Okay, so let's talk about 400 trillion dollars, let's say in the financial markets, because it is very interesting to me as well. what do you think, like, like, currently with the whole DeFi decentralized app space, it seems like you have uh, two major uh, use cases um, that have taken off. Correct me if I'm wrong, but what it appears like is you have, um, you know, uh, crypto as um, kind of this uh, trading uh, platform, So you could basically make money on crypto, you know, you trade it, exchange it, you have DEXs, etc. So you have this whole, you know, financial markets, trading, profiting use case, and it is a killer use case, you know, people love it. This is like why, you know, Coinbase and all these other, you know, exchanges are going crazy. And then the second use case, it seems like you have this whole lending protocol, right, that happened with with DeFi, Compound, Avin, a bunch of others that have really taken off where you can actually get interest. Um, what have you noticed any kind of third or fourth killer use cases in the financial markets that have really taken off with adoption, with with, with billions of dollars just, you know, going yeah, in and so,
1: hitting it? So I, th- I think uh, the world, as I mentioned, the world is going on the blockchain and the world is becoming tokenized. Step three is the world will be peer to peer. Okay. So the need, if you look at, I can't remember the exact numbers, but 40 trillion of of business around the world is middlemen. And don't quote me on that exact number, but it's huge. These are people that sell stuff and they take a piece, whether they're taking a commission from the uh, sale sale of a share or property or whatever else. This is all going to go away. And this is gonna be a radical change. So for example, say Dave, you have a house in Arizona and you want to move to Washington state or New York city or something else. You're, you have a family issue. You need to go to a different part of the country and you want to sell your house. I want your house. I've been there. I visited you. We had a glass of wine together, for example, and I love the house. I love the views. And I say to you, Hey, I'll buy it from you. We can do that in a peer to peer way using the blockchain to secure the asset and the transfer of rights, and I'll pay you in crypto. And it could all be seamless and instantaneous. This is what's happening with the world. Say, for example, you need a million dollars to buy a new house in Washington state. I can lend it to you. You pay me interest in Ethereum, and my collateral is your house up there. This is what's happening. This goes way beyond borrowing and lending, but all things peer to peer. And that's the exciting thing about the DeFi space. And you see that today, you see that with DEXs where people swap tokens, you know, maybe the swapping Doge for Shiba, they can do it on Uniswap or anywhere else, almost frictionless. That was unthinkable a few years ago. And we're here now. You, you take uh, companies like Celsius. Celsius is now like a top 10 in financial institution by market cap, based on their recent round of nearly half a trillion dollars. How is that possible? You know, it it is just the world is just changing at such a pace that the regulators can't even keep up. And that's why it's very, very exciting as well for me to watch. It's like if you analyze the way internal combustion engine companies, car companies are being completely disrupted by Tesla, the exact same analogy is for traditional finance companies. They're going to be completely disrupted by everything that's happening. And the toothpaste has already left the tube and people think they can put controls in place to stop people from doing this but they can't so for example uh, the government bans bitcoin in nigeria overnight bitcoin becomes the most popular thing so it's like it's like a cockroach if you try and kill it you can't it just grows when you try and uh, that's it's just fascinating yeah fascinating time to be alive
0: yeah
1: yeah interesting
0: um yeah um what is your your overall kind of trading strategy and investing strategy with crypto, um, how long is your typical holding period? Are you in and out of assets pretty quickly? Do you have certain price targets? Once it reaches you, you trim back or sell out, like what's your kind of approach?
1: Yeah, so I, I do I do it all. So I buy stuff, I hold stuff, I hedge stuff, swap stuff, I speculate, I do a lot of arbitration. Um, and I try uncover, valuable names i don't care what it is it could be uranium it could be copper it could be a bitcoin miner like CleanSpark. it could be MicroStrategy being completely undervalued like it was over the last couple of days until some arbitrager figured it out uh, that's kind of what i do i like to have things long term i consider myself kind of a swing trader to a long-term investor but again i break my portfolio into chunks as to where i play and how i play so i've got the core holdings like uh Hold Tesla, hold Google, but when they hit certain tops, I go short. So, for example, um, I have I have a number of leap positions and synthetic long positions in Tesla, but I also have equity holding of Tesla. And when that goes to a certain amount, when it goes high, like last time was uh, early last year or early this year, I sold coals out of the money against my position. That will protect me from downside. So I do the same thing with Bitcoin. If I feel it's getting too frothy, I sell calls against a position. If I think it's completely oversold, I get into a position. So, but most of it is I try and time things to be long-term, like more than 12 months, so I don't get a lot of short-term capital gains hits. So that's that drives a lot of my. Uh, investing thesis, but I do do a lot of short-term stuff too as well.
0: Got it. Are you selling calls on Bitcoin or like on a more synthetic asset like MicroStrategy or something?
1: Yeah, so I do it all. So the way I hedge Bitcoin will be through things like Beto, which is the new future ETF. I have Ledger X, which is now connected to FTX. I can do options there as well against Bitcoin positions and also through proxies like MicroStrategy. But I tend to Trade MicroStrategy based on how it's performing against Bitcoin and how much intrinsic value is there. And I built an arbitrage calculator for that. So it tells me when it's way undervalued. Like I think it hit 97, 98% pure Bitcoin value. And 2% of the business was the actual business, which is worth, by my calculations, at least 1.2 billion. And that was, it wasn't even in the equation. So it just depends on the situation. It depends how things are priced. But now, I think when the crypto space began, nobody knew how to play it. Institutional investors weren't in there and futures tools weren't in existence. Now you've got a situation where you have arbitrage companies. One was just founded last week to do exactly what I've been doing for years. Uh, so it's going to get harder as we go forward. <laughs> but now the, the smart money is coming into the crypto space mm-hmm. and with very sophisticated tools and quant.
0: Mm. Uh- do you ever, um, do you lend out your shares, stake your, your crypto at all, like in terms of to gain interest?
1: Yeah, that's, that's an interesting story. If you talk to me in January, 2021, I'd say no. For me, 6% return wasn't worth the rehypothecation risk. Today I'm a different person. So I do believe again, back to the thirds, I lend about a third of my crypto out. So for example, I stake Solana, I stake Ethereum. Uh, Polkadot. I lend out Bitcoin, just a little bit of it on Celsius, and uh, so yeah, I started doing that. And it's kind of um, it's very exponential when you look at the compounding effect of getting paid interest every week on a platform like Celsius, and the impact that has on the size of your assets. Especially, imagine uh, you buy Bitcoin at twenty nine thousand, which I did stuck one on Celsius. And then you see the interest of you know 6% every annualized. But that little piece that you get every week doubling in value and the compound effect is really powerful. Um, so once you start doing that, it kind of gets addictive, I hate to say. So compounding on compounding, the eighth wonder of the world, as you know. Uh, and now, I, I, if you look at certain proxies like Cardano and Solana, 80% of the supply is staked. Mm-hmm. Everybody's doing it. It's yeah. lucrative. And even traditional financial institutions are trying to get into the stablecoin coin uh, place as well so they can earn alpha, get the 8.8% yield on stable coins because fiat doesn't pay anything anymore. It's dead. And that's why the regulators are concerned and the banks are scrambling. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um
0: uh, cardano and Solana so first on cardano so it seems like you know ADA it's a bit stagnant the price like what would you attribute that to it seems like there's been some type of I say shift in sentiment um, regarding ADA um, in the past several months um, yeah what's your take on cardano and
1: its future well that's uh, that's an interesting one so uh, it's prickly because sometimes crypto have these things called tribes or armies. And again, it's never a good idea to call somebody's baby ugly. So I, I tried to try to, to talk about it a different way. Uh, so let me take you back in time and explain the history behind how I came from. So I have an Ethereum position. And I was concerned for, since I got into Ethereum in early 2020, so call it nearly two years now, um, If there is such a thing as an ETH killer, that could threaten my Ethereum position. So I started digging into Cardano and looking at it carefully, and then looking at all the other top 20 smart contract platforms and analyzing them in great detail. And I built uh, two different models to help do that. And it's a kind of a quant view that updates itself automatically to make sure that I stay on top of things. And if there is an ETH killer, I'll be able to identify it early. So with that, I did get into Cardano uh, early this year and at a very good price. So it's done very well for me. Everybody's done very well in Cardano, but it's been stagnant. It's been stagnant for two reasons, I believe. One, the new Cardano that they just released, the Alonzo for- fork, um, I believe it's very well engineered. Uh, it's built by academics. It's been peer reviewed. It's been given a lot of thought. The problem they have is they built it against a spec of Ethereum five years ago. The world has changed. Now there are chains that have been developed over the past 12 months that have solved the trilemma of security and speed and decentralization. And you've got the transaction per second benchmark of 250 transactions per second for Cardano compared to Solana doing 50,000 transactions per second. And it gets... Has an overflow with some bug. Bots hit it. It goes up to 400,000 transactions per second before it even craps out. So that is the new benchmark. So again, Cardano is an amazingly engineered piece of machinery, but it's built for four or five years ago. It's not ready. And now even Charles Hoskinson admitted on Saturday, I think, in AMA, they need to put all of their development resources into Hydra, which will solve their transaction per second speed issue, which they don't have today. They also don't have enough centralization. They don't have enough validators like other chains. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of work still needs to be done. And the adoption is hard on Cardano. Other chains allows you to build real easy. And I call, kind of call it the, the AOL of blockchains. You know, AOL was widely adopted because it was so easy to use. Solana is so easy to use. You have 11 DEXs on there right now. They are built up over the last three or four months. That's crazy adoption. And the amount of TVL, you have TVL growing on some um, AMMs exploding just in the space of a couple of weeks. This is why I'm extremely bullish on Solana. I earmarked it in March and April of this year as the ETH killer. Mm-hmm. And I went in hard and uh, was very lucky in doing that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Solana is definitely an interesting play. Um, the the transactions per second is just incredible, um, and um, it seems like they have definitely a, a role to play. Do you think there's any tension between Solana and Ethereum? Like, you know, some people say, oh, it could compete with Ethereum, but others people other people say, oh, they're in two completely different fields, right? Um, enabling different things, and you can, you know. And it seems like with Ethereum, they're going with this whole, you know, sharding and roll roll ups, you have the whole polygon and just you have high transaction speed on level, on L2 chains, but what's your take? Do you think there's an advantage with Solana to that is an enduring advantage? Like, do you think they can actually increase their um, uh, percent um, valuation against Ethereum over time, just because they're a, a more efficient, let's say level one blockchain?
1: Yeah, so I think it's funny you said, do they compete? Uh, I think, you know, if you look at the personalities behind some of these chains, you take Charles and Vitalik Buterin, Vitalik's at Ethereum, and Charles Hoskinson is at Cardano. They had a falling out many, many years ago. They don't like each other. They have a hatchet that they just can't bury. And I think that's been a huge part of the obsession for Charles, which has probably hurt Cardano because they've been focused on the wrong ball. Nobody saw Solana coming. And Solana is backed by, you know, the richest under 30 person on earth and top venture capitalists. Like the smartest money, as you know, you've been around Silicon Valley, I think, Sand Hill Road, the smartest money on earth is behind this project, as is behind FTX. And what they're building is this juggernaut of DeFi capabilities on a platform. And they don't look at anybody. They're not bothered about anybody. They keep their head to the ground. And it's all about adoption. It's all about network effect. These guys understand it better. While other people are quibbling over crazy stuff, this way is better, this way is better, this technology is better, no. Salon is just doing their thing in their own lane. And that's why it's kind of fascinating. So I look at a number of factors when I value investments. One of them is where the smart money is going. And it was very clear to me <laughs> early this year where it was going. Mm-hmm. And that helps too.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I recommend uh, people watch to watch your Solana video from several months ago. Um, it was a great breakdown overview on Solana's um, kind of advantages. And um, when I interviewed, actually, I interviewed Anatoly um, several months ago. My takeaway mm-hmm. from the interview was he he doesn't really have that, like, we're competing against, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything. He really wants to, you know, uh, he stamp out inefficiencies in financial markets and have these super high transaction rates that can really redefine, you know, um, markets like let's say NASDAQ or whatever. Um, which is interesting because it's a different angle. Um, and he's it's it's so technical focused. He's trying to solve a technical problem. He's not very interested in memes and, you know, like, no, no, no. Like, I asked him to, you know, to come up with a meme. He's like, you know, he doesn't know, you know. And it's a, it's, it's very interesting. interesting yeah. If you
1: look at his background, you know, network mm-hmm. management, Qualcomm, scale, TPS it fits so beautifully into the whole blockchain world. And that's why he was able to have that, what was it? It was a dream or something. He woke up during the night, it was like cold sweats. It's like, oh, got it. I mean, we have, like, I think Vitalik Buterin as well is also a genius of his time. We've got some just incredible minds, Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever the team was behind Bitcoin, some incredible minds. But what really has me excited is this transformation. And that's what gets me pumped is digging into these disruptive technologies because it's just fascinating to me. Tesla is fascinating to me. Google is fascinating to me, always has been from day one. Um, And now you got all this blockchain stuff. And all these worlds are colliding as well. It's only a matter of time before, who knows, maybe the biggest bank in the world, if you combine something that makes cell phones like Apple with blockchain technology and underpinnings, That's the power. And the rest of the traditional finance world are kind of like the rest of the traditional ice manufacturers. They're zombies. They're dead. They don't even know what's coming. And they can't pivot fast enough to survive. So that's why it's just completely fascinating. But I do think as well, back to Ethereum, they do have a huge edge. And that is everything runs on Ethereum today. It's up to the newcomers, the new entrants into the market to steal market share away from them because they do control everything right now. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, OK, <laughs> I have so many questions here, but um, I'm going to try to wrap up soon. But with um, some of the companies, let's say um, uh, with fintech, let's say you have Square, PayPal, uh, Coinbase, and you, you mentioned Apple, right? You know, like what is the future of, of, of a bank or the the functions of a bank? Like, where do you? Th- which company or where do you think is going to be the biggest, the winner? Will it be a pure DeFi play? You think where people just completely go off of the traditional banking system? Will it be a hybrid of sorts? Let's say like a Square or PayPal thing, or or will it be more of like a institution like Coinbase, which which is built upon you know kind of crypto, but it still has a centralization? Where do you kind of bet? You know the future of the banking for the, ne- the, the next generation will be.
1: Yeah, it's funny because uh, another one of my biggest positions is actually in a company called Square. And uh, I've been watching Square for the longest time. I have friends that work there. I've known all about it, I've been deep since day one. And again, got in very early and still hodl my position. But I think if you look at what Jack Dorsey is doing with Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining for all, working with strike, tipping on Twitter, Cash App and all the stuff that they do, that 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 the five legs of that stool is a beast and nobody has figured out to value it yet. Nobody has a clue when Jack Dorsey talks, he talks in very very simple terms. They they discount him. That's one to watch. So when I break this space down, and you've taken me down a rabbit hole here, I think of it as a continuum. Okay. So you got on the, the far left, you got all the TradFi, that's Citibank's, Wells Fargo's, et cetera. Far right, you've got the completely decentralized platforms that are just running automatically. And then in the middle, you got the players like PayPal and Square that kind of are hybrid solutions. And even part of that hybrid solution, you could also include a little bit more to the right, who would be like a group like Celsius you know, borrowing and lending using crypto, you know, deposit your crypto, borrow money against it, zero interest rate. Like it's, it's unthinkable. If you said that to some banker three years ago, they'd think you're crazy. But it's here today. And the adoption is startling. In fact, when regulators in certain countries block things like Celsius from operating, it causes an uproar. People feel like you're sealing their livelihood. And we're seeing a lot of that happening. So you've got, the on the far left you've got the banks influencing regulators to put a stop to all this nonsense in the middle and out to the right but they can't stop it like the nigeria example like like me for example i probably shouldn't say this but it's illegal to participate in idos for certain types of names turn on your vpn go turn some usdt into usdc or vice versa using radium move that money to a phantom wallet, which is on your hot browser, buy the IDO pretending you're in the Netherlands, stick it back in your wallet. It's not traced. There's no KYCs, no AML. It's very hard to track this stuff. And I'm saying things that, I don't know if they're illegal or not, but again, the regulators haven't caught up, nor can they. And people in the future, imagine you have one Bitcoin, and Bitcoin goes to $12 million in the year 2031, and all of a sudden you don't like the U.S. government, you can pack up your family and say, okay, we're going to go somewhere that's crypto-friendly, like El Salvador, or somewhere crypto-friendly and safe, like, I don't know, Portugal or Puerto Rico. That's what's going to happen as well in the future. People are going to vote with their feet. But the industries are absolutely ripe for massive disruption. And that whole... $40 Forty trillion or whatever it is of middleman fees around the world, all going to go away, and that's what's that's the market size that has me excited.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like on the whole, let's say packing your Bitcoin and leaving. It seems like over time, in five or ten years, the the government will be able to track down and trace and go after people. You know, um, even after they leave the country, I, I wouldn't be surprised, just because, you know. I think is it um, in the latest reconciliation bill? They're going to spend 400, I think, billion dollars or something to is it 40 over 10 years to to basically um, go after you know <laughs> more high net worth than individuals. Um, but, yeah, well, they're, yeah,
1: they're trying. They're trying to stopgap the hole, the bleed, but mm-hmm. they can't. Even if yeah. they taxed all the billionaires to death, all the crypto to death, it's it's not a spit in the bucket the deficit. It's not at all. like you know, The trillions that are being spent every month, every quarter, you, you, you can't plug that gap by taxing Elon Musk to death or Jeff Bezos or every Bitcoin holder. And yes, it's possible to track, but hard yeah. to track. Sure. You, know, you could say you have your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet. You say, oops, I went fishing with my cousin and it fell in the lake. It's at the bottom of some lake in Michigan. Go get it, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but the seed phrase is in your head, Mm -hmm. and you can transport that anywhere you want, and nobody can get it from you. That's Mm -hmm. the difference. That's what makes this so powerful. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, Yeah, one other note was like Stripe uh, could be one of the hybrid players, just because they're recently they announced they're getting into crypto as well. Um, So it's going to be a a different world in five or ten years for sure. You know,
1: well, there's Strike and there's Stripe. They're both very (laughs) revolutionary fantastic companies especially what strike is doing yeah um the combination of strike and lightning and bitcoin and twitter and square that's unbelievable and then you've got the level two layer twos now being built on top of bitcoin it's going to be an exciting time as we go forward
0: for sure definitely uh james it's been um, a fantastic time i've learned a ton and i love talking about This stuff—it's not just because it's about finance or crypto. It's because it's about the world. Like it's so intertwined, yeah. all these issues with economic issues, with social issues, with cultural, with the future of technology, government, etc. It's such a multi-faceted, you know, um, a field. You know that you have to understand it feels like the whole world to understand where things are headed. So it's definitely been fascinating talking with you.
1: I'm glad you said that because about one in a hundred comments I get on YouTube is, why do you spend so much time talking about regulation and macroeconomics and inflationists? Because that's what's driving everything. That's the Mm -hmm. underpinning. And if you don't understand that, you can't understand where the future is going. And that's why it's so important. So I'm very glad you recognize that. And again, everything is colliding together. Mm-hmm. And a very, very accelerated pace like we've never seen before. So it is a super exciting time to be alive and we are blessed to be around during this time. Yes, I definitely,
0: agree. Thank you so much
1: um, Dave for your time. And I'll see you next week, talk about Tesla.
0: Yes, next week um, I'll have uh, James on again and talk about Tesla, his uh, derivative option plays with Tesla and other stocks. Um, and um, I'm dying to actually ask you also why YouTube, you know, you're retired, probably financially free, but you know, what's the purpose of motivation? We'll talk about stuff like that next week. And um, in the meantime, in the video description below, I'll um, link to James um, Invest Answers, his YouTube channel, and also his Twitter account. And um, yeah, it's been fantastic. Check out some of his videos and uh, we'll see you guys next week.
1: Awesome. Thank you, sir.
0: All Bye. right. Bye.